District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. For all your latest in conservation, energy, wildlife, shooting sports, hunting, fishing, and the like. Today's episode is largely going to focus on crossover. What hunting and conservation bills made it, failed to pass the Rubicon, because the General Assembly is divided. A lot of conservationist reforms cannot sadly be pursued right now. You have a lot of resistance from Democrats. But there are some glimmers of hope. Today, I'm going to largely focus on some legislation that is pending in Virginia and the status of the nomination of Secretary of Natural Resources, Andrew Wheeler, and where that currently stands. Last reported, it seems like the Virginia Senate, which is controlled by Democrats, successfully blocked him. And having talked to some people in Governor Yunkin's communications staff and seeing the corresponding reporting, they're very disappointed in Senate Democrats in doing this. I'll explain maybe how there's a alternative path they're going to pursue to keep him in the position and if he will last past March 12th when the General Assembly adjourns. So we'll talk about some good legislation, bad legislation, and the current status of this outstanding cabinet position. Let me start with conservation and wildlife first, then we'll move over to energy legislation. So things that passed that concerned the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources. So there's House Bill 65 relating to live nutria. I believe it was relating to nuisance trapping. Also, the bill that passed crossover was HB 120, Delegate Wyatt's bill, creating a special hunting and fishing license for certain disabled veterans. Another bill that passed was the right of certain hunters to go on lands of another, concerning that maybe to ensure there's no private property infringements with respect to that. Actually creates exceptions to the prohibition on hunters carrying firearms or bows and arrows on their persons or hunting any game while they're on their dog is in immediate danger or they obtain prior permission from the landowner or his agent. So this relates to kind of the controversial issue about hunting with dogs in Virginia. We can delve into that in another episode because I think we would have to have more time, but there is kind of an interesting divide between people who hunt with dogs and traditional hunters who don't, and that has created some conflicts, but that's an interesting thing. Let's move over to the Senate bills. This is perhaps the most important bill that hopefully the House of Delegates will decide on and vote in the affirmative. It is a long time coming, finally, to eliminate the last blue law pertaining to hunting access. So in 2014, Governor McAuliffe, I'll give credit where credit is due, but he had a Republican-controlled General Assembly through this. They passed an end to the prohibition of Sunday hunting on private lands. Now we still have that outstanding issue of allowing Sunday hunting on public lands. And this is Senator Chap Peterson's bill, Senate Bill 8. And it made crossover and should be deliberated. It actually got pretty good bipartisan support in the Senate. There's about 40 members. There's 21 Democrats, 19 Republicans. And this did get some pretty bipartisan support, 29 yeses, 11 noes. And I was told by some friends who've been monitoring this closely It's not on the docket today, but maybe later this week. But there's a very, very good chance, barring some crazy event, 
that we will finally have the last of blue laws revoked so we can go hunting on public lands on Sundays, which really doesn't take away from people going to church. People can do both hunting and going to church. So the argument falls flat on its face. If, if that's what the contention and objection to Sunday hunting is, people can do both. I know plenty of people who do both. It's very feasible. So no way that this should still be law, but hopefully House of Delegates members recognize this and the benefit to hunting and fishing. And I know that many do. And I think the governor would be eager to sign this into law. So we'll see what happens with that. But that is something to be on the lookout for. Hopefully the House of Delegates do not pass this. This bill died in the House side. But for some reason, the Senate version made it to ban snare traps. And this is Senate Bill 492. And it passed the chamber. And I think it even got Republican votes. That's a shame. And then there was a another interesting bill passing the Senate, 29 yes votes, 10 no votes in committee, to, and I believe, and it passed the full Senate too, of course. So Senator Martson's bill to establish the Wildlife Corridor Grant Fund. And I don't think wildlife corridors are super controversial. We see this out West, and if we see the establishment of wildlife corridors in Virginia, that'll be super interesting. It's a little different out here because we have a very different framework. Um, we have a lot of wildlife. I just don't know how that would be, how they would construct it. But I'm not opposed to wildlife corridors. I think if done correctly, they would actually be good. But we see that and that could go to the House of Delegates. So very interesting there. Now, bills that are no longer moving forward. This is a shame. This was actually a pretty good bill by Delegate Edmonds to allow Sunday hunting on wildlife management areas. They said, according to the department, the bill is no longer going forward. That should be going forward. This is another bill that sadly did not make it to crossover special lifetime hunting and fishing licenses, volunteer firefighters and emergency medical services. And they say that the bill was laid on table. Another bill by Delegate Edmonds to allow for Sunday hunting on wildlife management areas. It failed to report in the House Agriculture, Chesapeake and Natural Resources Committee. This bill to kind of change the limits on caliber use, 22 caliber rifle authorized for hunting deer it's no longer moving forward, but the bill was laid on the table. Four yeses, two noes. A hunting ban, thankfully, died in the House of Delegates. Delegate Goditis's bill, hunting with steel jawed traps prohibition penalty. Bill was passed by indefinitely. Four yeses, two noes. Uh, Delegate Ransom's snare trap prohibition bill. Like I said, there was a Senate bill that crossed over, and this House version failed to report. It sounds like a companion bill to the House one. The prohibition of Trapping contests and predator killing contests died too. It failed to report 3-3. Thankfully, another bill relating to snare trap prohibition also failed to report. Let's briefly talk about some energy bills that made it. With Republicans now controlling the House of Delegates, there was a keen interest to repeal the Virginia Clean Economy Act to withdraw us from the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative and to change the clean car standards, which would make it so Virginia by 2035 would abandon gas-powered cars. And we have seen efforts to repeal Reggie or to repeal the VCA to remove us from Reggie stalled. Maybe I have to look into seeing if they will make it over to cross over. But I, according to reporting I see from the Virginia Mercury, it doesn't seem like the case, except for a few things relating to the air pollution board that actually even got bipartisan support. What else got bipartisan support? Uh, the Senate Bill 565 to allow gas companies to bill customers for construction of biogas infrastructure. 
and then some other rollback. So there were even some things, what is it, uh, eight, uh, Senate Bill 657, a direct, what they're calling a direct attack on Virginia's independent air and water boards that removes their authority to issue or deny permits. So we do actually see some stuff that did get bipartisan support, maybe to curb kind of the excesses of the policies that passed under full Democratic control. But it'll probably be a while to see a repeal of the VCEA Reggie and this car emission standard, because I think people have to unfortunately see how much costs are going to go up for them to come around on this issue. But Democrats are screaming and saying that, oh, my gosh, they're undoing this history making agenda that we implemented. But it was rammed through because they had slight Democratic control. But it's obviously not the will of the entire Commonwealth. You talk to people and explain these laws to them that are already in the books and explain how much their costs are going to go up. You'll find that actually they may not be in support of this after all. Like I said, there was a Mason-Dixon poll that showed that even independents and a good share of Democrats did not like the contents of the VCEA Reggie at this car emission standards. So Democrats have to reckon with the fact that even though they had full control of the General Assembly and Governor's Mansion, they were not very transparent about the impacts of these laws and people are now starting to see it for themselves. So they can scream all they want. They can be upset. They don't have a mandate. They didn't listen to voters. Voters removed them from office during last year's election and they have to respect the will of the people, but they're still in denial over this. And even with respect to energy policy, like I said, I think you're going to see a lot more opposition to this, to those three points, the VCA participation in Reggie and the car emission standards, because there's no infrastructure for electric vehicles here in Virginia whatsoever. So how can you push us to abandon gas-powered cars if there's no infrastructure? And also with studies showing that only wealthy people will benefit from electric vehicle subsidies makes no sense. They're just trying to waste money and trying to cripple the economy all the while not benefiting the environment. So that's kind of a legislative update, and we will keep you abreast with the latest especially if Sunday hunting crosses and, and gets to the governor's desk. I hope, I'm optimistic about that. I'm, I'm hoping that does pass. Let's briefly talk about the status of the nomination of Andrew Wheeler. I should have talked about this earlier because it's a little out of the news cycle right now. But Senate Democrats were successful in blocking his appointment to serve as the Secretary of Natural Resources in Virginia. And this was from February 8th from Sarah Vogelsong of the... Virginia Mercury. She's actually a pretty good reporter, even if I don't necessarily agree with her politics, but she's pretty fair and she'll really examine things, I think, more clear-headed than some DC E&E reporters. But I'm citing this from her that uh, in a party-line vote, 21 Democrats overrode 19 Republicans to strip Wheeler's name from a resolution confirming Youngkin's cabinet appointments. The final resolution must be voted on a third time before officially passing the Senate. So I haven't seen any update about whether or not the final resolution made it to the Senate. I think this is the second vote they did. But even if he were not to continue as acting secretary, so his tenure would end if Youngkin doesn't retain him somehow. Although I've heard from the governor's office that they're very disappointed that he wasn't able to be confirmed. There's also chatter that he may reemerge in recess appointments. I think some Republican staffers in the new House majority have threatened Democrats with recess appointments. So they may have this 
stripping of party line votes come back to haunt them if he were to survive to Reese's appointments. And I need to familiarize myself more with the process. But um, having spoken to some of Youngkin's comm staffers, they were very, they expressed on behalf of the governor their disappointment and dismay with Democrats in the Senate with their refusal to confirm him. So Senate Democrats are playing with fire here, especially not allowing the governor who has a mandate to have people at his disposal to carry out his agenda. And I talked about this before. We had Administrator Wheeler on the podcast before that a lot of people misinterpreted what exactly he did. They've painted everything, every agenda item, every policy he pursued as destructive to the environment, that he's compromised because he worked for the coal industry, that he's this really evil guy. And if you talk to him, like I have, and I've talked to people who've worked for him, he's probably the least threatening person you could meet. He doesn't really say any bizarre, crazy things. He's pretty level-headed. And he certainly has grievances with a lot of people in the press for failing to accurately report what they did just to say that he's carrying out some sort of sinister agenda. And I think if you look at what they did, they were upholding a lot of standards. They were upholding a lot of environmental policy. And they even were expanding in areas that Democrats even neglected, Superfund cleanups, doing other different projects. If you go back to my episode with Mandy Gunasekara, who was his chief of staff, she'll explain to you what exactly they did. And you can judge and weigh Andrew Wheeler's kind of legacy for yourself. But I've spoken to the people who've worked for him. You should at least consider their perspective too against kind of the media narrative that has been painted about him. Like I said, if he doesn't survive, I think there is chatter that he may be in the administration in a position that doesn't require confirmation. But I, like I said, I think there is a tool that Republicans will use in the legislature to force recess appointments, and that's where Wheeler could actually be appointed despite what Democrats have been doing. So we will keep you posted on that as well. This Monday, I'll be speaking with Charlie from Hell for Wildlife. You've probably heard about this organization. Maybe you're on Instagram and you've seen their content populate your feeds or your Instagram stories. I've shared a few things from them, and I've even used their portal to contact Virginia lawmakers about opposing hunting and trapping bans. And while the organization is in its infancy, it really has started to make some waves. I think Charlie had explained to me in our podcast that they've had and encouraged over 100,000 people to contact their lawmakers or do some sort of action with respect to opposing or supporting policies. Very impressive stuff. And as someone who has followed policy for the longest time, I think they're going to be offering something unique. And a lot of organizations do encourage you to respond and to contact your lawmakers. But what they're doing is a little different. It's a little easier. It streamlines the contact form process. And they offer an incentive program, which is a really intriguing way of getting people to contact their lawmakers. You don't want to miss our conversation. I hope you guys familiarize yourselves with Howl for Wildlife. I think they're going to be making waves and having a big impact going forward, especially in 2022. So be sure to check that out on Monday and encourage your friends to listen in too. Thanks for listening to this episode of District of Conservation. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you're following the podcast on your preferred player, We recommend Apple because that's where the largest share of our listenership hails from. And you can also find us on Spotify and dozens of other platforms. Make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And please, please, please go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify. Those help us go a long way in seeing how far we can go and measure our progress. So we really appreciate that. 
If you enjoy this podcast, please share the word with your friends, share links to individual episodes and to the podcast. Want to appear on the podcast? Have an interesting story to tell? I'm all ears. Shoot me a message and we'll do our best to process your request.